And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Puzzle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Really excited to be joined today with Billy Boozer. Um, he worked at Truth Social, which is going to be an interesting conversation today. And he has a new company called Hustle Mob. We'll talk all about that today as well. Um, before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has a platform to help you manage that team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. Billy, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how's it going? So before we get started, tell me a little bit about your background. You know, you've you've worked as a CEO on the product side. Or you also have an engineering background. Like, what what is your background? Yeah, so I'm a self-taught engineer. I was um, a architecture student in college, and uh, during the 2006 through 2008 recession, uh, nobody could get a job as an architect, and at least ones that were coming out of college. And I was also uh, dual majoring in computer science and software engineering at the time, and uh, just decided to drop off of doing the whole architecture thing and focus on technology. And at the time, they were teaching C++ and Java, and I didn't enjoy either one of those things. So I picked up PHP and Ruby and realized that they were teaching me things that, while may have enterprise value at the time, did not have the same enterprise value as a Rails developer did at the time. And so I started picking up consulting gigs. And uh, before too long, you know, I was charging $150 an hour to be a software engineer. And uh, I stopped going to school and just started building things. Um, and so I'm just a self-taught engineer. I have a passion for software engineering. It brought me empowerment in my life when I uh, felt powerless to a certain extent in, uh, in the industry that I was working in. And um, my wife will say that while I was learning software engineering, she would go to sleep by the light of her, my laptop. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was, it was just, um, I, I just found a passion and something that I, I felt like other people needed. I felt like a magician and everyone else were muggles, I guess. And so, uh, I could go out there and do things that no one else could. And it was, uh, like I said, very empowering. So what's funny is, you know, you've been, uh, been doing this for, you know, 15 years or so, whatever now. And yeah. you've, you've already been doing it long enough that something like Ruby and Rails is almost dead already. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Like, uh, it's funny. That was the cool hotness, and now it's like dead. So, one of my uh, first jobs as a software engineer was a Rails developer, and the it, you you learn this fast that these technologies like die, you know, in these in these life cycles, right? And the first job that I had as a as a software engineer, kind of dedicated on a specific project, um, I was uh, my when I showed up the the screen that was. I was using or I was assigned to at the desk was being held up by a cobalt book. 
And it was like, that was my first experience of, hey, there's something that has been deprecated for me to do the thing that I'm doing today. And then since, you know, we've seen the JavaScript revolution with every JavaScript framework that exists, we've seen server side, serverless, um, we've seen, uh, you know, client side, everything, and then, you know, consolidated code bases for everything. And then every single frame, but work saying they can also do mobile. And like, yes, so like, yep. it's, uh, it's been an interesting experience. It's been a whirlwind of learning technologies. Yeah. We, as I talk to people and, and they ask me, they're looking for Ruby on rails developers. I'm like, Ooh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> it's falling I mean, way just... out of favor. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's interesting. What's funny is I see a guy that's on, I don't remember his name right now, he's been pushing Ruby on Rails a lot on Twitter lately, and it feels like there's been people trying to pick it up again because of some of the new things that have been out there. But we really focus a lot on Elixir and Phoenix lately, yeah. and so we do a lot of applications that require high concurrency, multi-threadedness, and uh, the ability to you know have open connections and live connections to people. And so um, I think... Uh, I think those technologies have done better at scaling for those things than Ruby yeah. and Rails have. So tell me about your entrepreneurial journey. Where, where yeah. did you kind of kind of start there? So uh, honestly, when I went to start really, you know, I guess commercializing my skills as a software engineer um, was because I had a interesting project that I wanted to build for people. And uh, it was like this consolidation of, you know, uh, calendars and events to get people to get meet together in person uh, at a higher frequency. And so, you know, like one as a kid i was always entrepreneurial so i like had you know little books that i published or i sold magic cards out of my locker or candy you know uh from costco or sam's club back then and and so i've always been that way but really what pushed me into uh doing software was i wanted some agency for myself i wanted to feel as though i wasn't controlled by uh, someone that wasn't either as intelligent or as driven as i am and so uh, I just kind of dove into building software. Um, the first real project that I worked on as an entrepreneur was a jobs application or a, excuse me, an applicant tracking system. And so I built a high volume applicant tracking system for a client while I was working at an agency. And we decided to spin that out as its own entity and it ended up not working out very well, but we got some really interesting customers and it basically allowed you to create your own hiring algorithms with knockout questions so that as uh, for high volume manufacturing facilities, they'll get like a thousand job requests, excuse me, a thousand job applications for a single role. And right. they need to be able to find the best people in that thousand people, maybe yep. even 15,000. Um, yep. And so uh, we just created an application that did that. And so that set me on fire for doing it. I quit my job after all of that didn't work out and was an EIR at a small venture fund in Birmingham, Alabama, where I developed through four more pieces of software. And then a lot of it came down to I was a service provider. So I was, uh, I was an entrepreneur that had an entity that could build software for people. And so I started building software for large enterprises. So Southern Company and NASCAR and um, a bunch of big, big, big uh, enterprise businesses that couldn't move fast internally, but could get external resources to build software for them fast and solve problems. And I was the product guy slash software guy that could 
distill out what they needed and then actually go build it myself. Well, and that's the key is being the product guy, you know, product person. You know, a lot of people want to be software developers and engineers, but the the real trick and magic in all of it is the product, the product visionary part of it, being able to say, how the hell do we build this thing and be able to figure it out? Like, this is what we need to do and create a good user experience and a good business and all those things. And that is by far the hardest part of it. And a lot of people do not have that gift. Yeah, a lot of people have described me as weird, like to my face, they'll be like, you know, you're kind of weird, like, uh, like, it's easy to talk to you about things. And we don't actually have to guide you too much. And I was like, that's really the entrepreneurial, you know, nature of myself, like, I I want to go out and solve problems, I want to be the one that actually has, uh, not just agency, but responsibility over that problem. And so that intersected with a skill of building software that was just uh, um, had enterprise value, I guess, like it had value to people that really had to deal with people that either just wanted to talk about the technology or had no ability to execute on the technology itself. You are a visionary CTO. I just started a blog (laughs) called that and that, that, that is you. I love it. I'm the the same way. Uh, I need to read the blog then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you a link. So how in the hell did you end up involved in truth social? So um, one of my best friends in the world is a guy named Josh Adams, and he is um, he is and or was pretty influential in the Elixir and Erlang world. Uh, okay. He had done a lot of functional programming uh, talks at conferences and then committed to those core code bases. And um, there was a current CTO at Truth Social just like in its very nascent phase. Maybe there was like five total people on the project and three of them were, um, what are they called? Uh, what is the show? The Apprentice. They were Apprentice, uh, ex-Apprentice uh, contestants. So oh, they were wow. like okay. uh, they were like MBA guys basically that had small businesses of their own that were you know loyalists to Trump. And um, they had started this, uh, I think it was like Jan- just after the January 6th event happened um, when President Trump got kicked off of Twitter and everywhere else in the world. Um, they went to him and said, hey, you know, you're going to need to start something new and you're going to need to start something that you own uh, that no one else can control. And so um, they started an entity with him and it was actually two guys, a guy named, um, let's see. Named Andy Latinsky and Wes Moss. And one of them is a local Atlanta guy that like focuses on finance and owns a, a finance business. And then the other one was like a radio personality. Okay. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just this hodgepodge of people. Like uh, one of the first people that I had engaged with that was there was he, they were calling him the head of the product at the time. And he was an ex insurance sales guy, basically, like, and, and was on The Apprentice. And he was great. Like, he's probably one of the best support people I've ever met in my life because he knew how to support people through insurance issues, right? Like, he knew how to be very empathetic, but he wasn't a product guy. And so, um, it was very much a hodgepodge of people. And so the current CTO had reached out to a friend of um, Josh's that was doing a podcast with him. And they had run one of the larger Elixir podcasts uh, that existed. And um, they knew that they were going to build this thing off of Mastodon, which is uh, you know an open source social network. And it's the basis for like Gab and a couple of other social networks. And 
but they knew that they were going to get a lot of scale initially because everything with President Trump, if you put something out there in the world, sure. it's going to get a lot of attention. Sure. And so um, there was a variant of um, Mastodon called Pleroma, and I think it's actually called Soapbox or Rebase now or something like that. And um, it was an open source project that was built off of Elixir. And so Josh knew it really, really well. And and said they said, hey, can we bring you in to kind of consult on this? And he said, well, yeah, but I'll bring in another guy with me because he's great at product and we're going to need to make it actually a good product because like out of the box, it's not a great product. And so uh, we're, uh, we're going to have to build a mobile application and, you know, all kinds of other services that stood around it and doing that alone was not going to be realistic. And so um, he brought me in the first day and then I think within about three or four weeks because of just the stress and the expectations the existing cto quit and um yeah and they asked me to be the cto and i was like no i'd rather be the you know the head of product or the chief product officer so josh ended up taking on the cto role which was fantastic because he's one of the smartest people i've ever met in my life you know got a degree in mathematics graduated really fast from college you know uh, just has always understood how to make systems work at scale and also understood how to use make systems work at scale without uh, without the crutch of Amazon Web Services or uh, any of the existing systems that you would you, we wouldn't be able to leverage. And so, so you um, so you knew going into this that Trump was involved when you when you joined oh, yeah. the team. Okay. Yeah, we and, didn't believe it, to be honest with you. Like, we thought it was like just kind of like, we're going to go show up at this place and there's going to be people telling us this, but it's not going to be real. And come to find out it was real. And within, I think, a month or two, I was down in Mar a Lago meeting with the president, you know, pitching him what we were doing. Was he still the president at that time? No, 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 no. Uh, okay. This was, was in, yeah, I think it was in October of. Uh, a year ago, um, okay. so like uh, October of 2021 or something like that. So what is um, what is that like? What is that like to go to Mar-a-Lago Mar and and meet with him? It is crazy. Um, he is. I'll tell you one of the more endearing parts of him in general is that he looks you in the eye and listens to you when you talk to him. And I've been around a lot of people that have significant influence in life, or at least significant influence over a lot of people. And those people typically are not listening to you when you're talking to them. They're the type of people that will look through you and are thinking about what they can extract from you. Not to say he wasn't, but, you know, like he actually gave you his attention. Uh, he is not technology savvy whatsoever. Uh, there's a, a funny story where we were talking about like one of the initial features of True Social that we might implement to kind of coax users into um, you know wanting to sign up early because we weren't exactly sure about the demand. And so we were going to offer them like this badge that said you were like first million or something like that, you know, like this, you know, you, you got this something that showed who you were in the in the grand scheme of 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 the true social product. And he immediately was like, yeah, I know a guy that can print out these badges and uh, get them to everybody. I was like, no, 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 no. We're talking about digital badges here. Like we're talking <laughs> about just like things that show up on your profile, you know, like yeah. you go to his office in Mar-a-Lago. He doesn't have a computer in his office. He's got like a TV screen and that's it. And it's not even like a newer TV screen. <laughs> like, so like, uh, it, it was uh, it was interesting to be explaining technology to somebody that really wasn't technology literate per se oh, I mean, but also that like said, do an you, interesting person do you feel like he actually writes all of his own tweets and stuff 
Yeah, him and a guy named Dan Scavino do it. So that's an even crazier story. So Dan, apparently, I've, I, this is the story I've always been told. He's like uh, Trump's right-hand man when it comes to like social media. And the way he got the job was, at one point in time, he was Trump's caddy. And, okay. and so he became went from caddy. The come up was amazing because he's like right hand man, always next to him type guy. But that guy is the guy that really helps manage a lot of his social. But Trump is the one either dictating it or typing it in himself. I mean, he is that guy that wants to be he wants that connection with the underlying body of people that he engages with. So. How did the launch of Truth Social go? And like today, is Truth Social still exist or is it kind of limping along? So we left um, a year ago in March, me and Josh did. And then I think uh, a couple of other people did at the same time. And most of the reason why all of us left was we we didn't have a lot of confidence in some of the new people that uh, the, the, the leadership team was bringing in. And a lot of it also came down to I'm a general free speech purist, and I think that advertising is an anti-pattern against free speech. Um, And the reason why is actually very just like, I guess, functional or practical. If you have an ad every eight spaces in a uh, feed-based social network, that means you've taken the voice away from one of one out of every eight people. Okay, and so like I, I would rather find a different monetization model, and we all kind of like bifurcated on that and decided it wasn't necessarily the right project due to that, and um, and so like when we launched, it was. It was this frenzied craziness because we had built all of the infrastructure. We had deployed data centers across the United States, um, basically co-load and racked our own servers. Um, we had multiple cloud, uh, open source cloud frameworks deployed to different systems because different system has different hardware. And we had built a really interesting scaled system that managed uh, the moderation, that managed the mobile application, the API, the web service, all of these different things, even analytics. We had only done everything was open source. And what we found was if any, any of the points of failure that we were going to engage with were going to be any service that we just didn't have enough time to build. So like CDNs, like we had one CDN deplatform us like the week before we were going to launch uh, and also try to like dox us. So they tried to find the credit card information of that person and then try to send it out to other places. Um, we had um, we had one underlying infrastructure provider that just did not ever live up to the expectations that we had. Um, and we're never, we were supposed to have an extra hundred servers the, the, the week that we launched. Um, and then uh, Apple launched us an hour earlier than we expected, which like, you know, that you wouldn't think that that was a big deal. But when you're building a social media product to scale to millions of people in the first moment of its existence, and uh, you're having to build all of the underlying infrastructure yourself. Every moment counts. And we all did that in about four months. And so like, it wasn't like a, a thing that was, uh, was we had plenty of time to take care of every issue. And so when we launched, they had suggested, Apple had suggested that we create a waiting list. And uh, we, we built a service that created a waiting list. And uh, funny enough, uh, we got so much user demand that 
there was a <clears throat> unknown race condition that was created in the number of users. Like that, you would get like a ticket number. That ticket number was off by the orders of hundreds of thousands fairly quickly because of the demand was so just immediate. I mean, it was like a lightning bolt hit our, our our servers, right? And like you just saw this flash when everything went on, and everybody in the room started getting these messages. Because what we did was we did this pre-order strategy where Apple allows you to set your app up for pre-order, and within six months the app has to go live. I think it's six months or four months it has to go live, and as soon as it go li goes live, everyone that it was pre-ordered by it immediately downloads to their phone. And so all of a sudden, we had millions of people getting this app downloaded and onboarded to the application. And I think we, within, you know, maybe 10 seconds, we went down. And then we, <laughs> within 45 minutes, we were back up uh, and limping yeah. along. We would have SMTP providers hit their maximum limit. So we had to build our own SMTP service and, you know, rack our own servers for that specific service that could handle 20 million, you know, email sends per you know, whatever. Uh, it, it was just, it was just like band-aids after band-aids after band-aids. But the, the thing about it is, is it worked. Like we actually onboarded, I think we were the fastest social network to 1 million users. We did it in sub one month. Uh, so like it was, well, that sounds like a crazy. total nightmare to me because you're, unless you're able to thoroughly load test all these things in advance, which we know yeah. you can never really do perfectly. No, right. Yeah. Like, so yeah. you're just running around putting out fires and playing whack-a-mole for like all hours of the night, I assume, right? Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was like 36 hours. Everyone, like me and Josh and a few other kind of like technology leadership were on like 36 hour schedules where we were not sleeping for 36 hours. Somebody would come and we'd come back, you know, 12 hours after 10 hours after we had not slept for 36 hours. And the only thing that saved us honestly in that time was we did a really good job in the infrastructure. And I give all the credit to Josh for this of, putting together um, dashboards in things like Prometheus and Grafana that enabled right. us to be able to see where yes. the problems were in our underlying infrastructure, like see these sawtooth graphs of, of, of SMTP requests falling off or errors cropping up. And, uh, or, or, I mean, the biggest one was our SMS provider. We couldn't use Twilio. So we used another one. Um, and they did not it's like have none of these the people would do business with you. Yeah, they wouldn't do business with us at all. Like we, we, some of them, we would set up like extra shell entities or use our vendors entities to make sure that they didn't know who we were. But, you know, like once you start processing requests through it and they're able to see where the requests are coming from, right? Like it was, it would be very clear and then they would shut us down. And so um, we ended up using another SMS provider that we asked about a week or two before to uh, make sure that we could get 10,000 requests per second go going through their um, their thing. Because we needed really about 60 or 70,000 requests per second to be able to feel like we we're going to be in the right spot. And uh, they ended up not being able to execute on that. And they got us about 1,000 requests per second. And so all of our SMS verifications just oh, began geez. to fail. And so I, that was just, then we load balanced across multiple keys and all kinds of stuff that happened. So we had to buy new phone numbers. It was just, uh, it was just a crazy nightmare. Man, if, if I was you, I feel like I'd be trying to figure out 
who all the providers were for like porn websites or something because it's like i know they would take our business <laughs> yeah yeah i have an ethical and moral problem with that in general so but they would they would and funny enough most of the people that when you get into the conversations of things like digital sovereignty or um, the ability like even in the decentralized world the crypto world a lot of it devolves into that conversation of you know how can we house the things that no one else wants to house and you get like lumped in with um you know, gun manufacturers deal with this uh por pornography deals with this online a bunch of gambling other things. The, yeah ga online gambling is a big one that deals with this although well you know with the with the deregulation of online sports betting they have gotten a little bit more, uh, uh, I guess, accepted into the hosting community. Marijuana but industry. A lot of these places just won't do it, you know? All and so we had to figure all of those things out that all those people had probably already figured out for years. Well, that is absolutely crazy. And I can relate to some of that from scaling systems before. Yeah. Um, I do want to take a minute to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io or you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the full-scale platform to define your technical needs and see what developers are available to join your team. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. Well, so we've talked a lot about True Social, and, and I definitely want to talk more about your uh, new company and what you're doing. But I guess maybe my last question for you about True Social looking back was, whatever they paid you worth it for the bullshit that you had to do? <laughs> um, Would you do it over again? So I would do it over again specifically for the team that we brought on. Uh, I've, I've never been able to build, never had the funds specifically to build a team like what we built. I mean, we hired it's a unique experience. And, yeah, like elite people. Like, and, and I say that elite people that also had an aligned set of values and a mission that they were all bought into. And I, I've talked about this recently in another podcast on, on my podcast, uh, Everyday Hustle, but they, when you can find a group of people that are mission aligned to what your business is doing, and they all feel in that same kind of congruent path that needs to go directly towards this thing, um, you get this kind of flow state of we're going to execute. And if we're not executing, someone's going to call you out and then you're going to realign yourself and move forward. And we, we got this core team of about 30 people that were just amazing. Uh, they were not in the leadership structure. They were all just individually executing on things. And, um, I, I would go back for them because they were my favorite part of the project. Um, the money wasn't good enough uh, in the end, uh, and in the end, you know, just like contract disputes and things like that were 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 difficult to deal with at the end of uh, of the situation. And it was also difficult because we had to deal with, you know, a lot of externalities that weren't executing on the mission. I mean, you know, dealing with whether family members, you know, wanted a piece of a thing or whether they wanted to bring in some political figure to be able to help with something that they had no business acumen or an understanding of what to do. Uh, we had to deal with that on a daily basis. And everybody's cronies thing, involved. I mean, cronies were just left and right. And yeah. that, the thing that sucked about it was, was that Every single week, we had a meeting with someone that wasn't a part of the team that was evaluating whether we were the right people to do it. And, you know, tr having to prove yourself every week was one of the most painful things because it, it, it 
took our focus away from what we were doing and what the mission was. And what was crazy about it is every person they ever brought in, we would chat with them for five minutes and realize they did not have the technical acumen to even be in the room yeah. with us or have the conversation with us. And then they would realize it within about 10 minutes and they'd be like, these guys are executing on a different level. And <laughs> so like, it was, uh, it was really funny to watch that part, but it was just distracting and it definitely, the money wasn't worth it. Uh, at least to this point, it definitely hasn't been. So, well, so, that is definitely a, a fascinating journey. And I, I'm sure a lot of people like talking about this since it's very interesting. And as we're recording this, with, uh, we're recording this on April 5th. Yesterday, Trump had the indictment about his business fraud charges over the Stam, uh, Stormy Daniels crap. So it's just kind of funny timing. We'll see how all that unfolds. But uh appreciate yeah. you uh, sharing sharing all this with us. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him on that issue because, uh, I mean, again, I don't ever – I honestly, a lot of it isn't him. A lot of it is just the people that are around him that are just grifters that end up probably getting him in more trouble than he realizes it. But I wish – you know, I'm a conservative, so I wish that um, – I wish there were less grifters in the conservative party. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's the best best thing I could say about it. So, Well, so tell us more about your, your new company, Hustle Mob. Yeah, so uh, Hustle Mob uh, originally started out as this thing right here, Tiny POS, um, and it was basically like a Venmo alternative for very early stage um, uh, businesses. And what we realized was um, in the in a current banking crisis uh, and in a uh, in a tumultuous financial environment, it is very difficult to start a business like that. And so what we did was we took the software that we had developed and kind of repurposed it for being able to create a better experience for merchants to sell products in person through NFC devices. And so right now that's what we're working on executing is just a really good point of sale that is initiated from uh, NFC devices, just tapping on something or scanning a QR code and enables the end consumer to actually be the point of sale with their mobile device. And so uh, that's that's really what we've uh, transitioned to with HustleMob. You can go to HustleMob.com and pre-register your username. Um, there's my shameless plug, but that's what it is. Is it's a it's a it's a product for being able to make sales for merchant uh, merchant services. And our our hope and our goal is is to build up enough of an audience around it to also provide a community that helps bring those merchants uh, better value and uh, more experience to help scale their business and grow. So think someone that mows lawns to get more more jobs to mow lawns or do lawn care. Uh, someone that you know cleans homes and wants more homes to be able to clean. How do you how do you have conversations or who are the mentors for those people? And our hope is to be able to build a product that provides a significant amount of value and then build a community around it that gives them more information on how to scale their businesses. And so would you describe it as still a point of sale? Like, but it's, yeah, you know, a it's really of a point of purchase point of sale right now. Uh, and what we do is we, we use NFC devices to initiate any of those sales. So we can give you stickers and cards that enable you to allow a user to tap the back of a phone or a device that accepts an NFC response and, uh, or an NFC request. 
and it will open up a web page that enables you to take payment for either recurring services, individual product sales, or even take tips. So think like a valet person could have one yeah. of these cards on them and be able to take their tips as opposed to go through Venmo, where they've probably got half of their weed purchases and splitting pizzas with people. So right. like, it's, it's, yeah. it's just to professionalize those things a little bit more. Yeah, separating your business transactions from your personal ones. So so once you get into payments like this, there's so many different ways you can go, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. sure your customers today are like, oh, well, that's great. I can sell my whatever service, but what if I want to sell it online or I need to send mm-hmm. me an invoice or, you know, the from a product perspective, I'm just curious, how are you like policing that and like forcing like, hey, no, this is what we're going to do. And we're not going to do all these other things because I feel like from a product like roadmap and, and what the product does perspective, you've probably got people trying to pull you all different directions. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the things you have to do as a product person or a person that has a vision around a product is get to that initial set of features that allows your customer to begin to give you that feedback of what value they're extracting from a product. And so, you know, the way I think about it is, is I've got intuition about something. I've seen a behavior that I would like to change and, or I would like to enable in a different way. And I want to create a product that does that initially, but then enables the actual underlying user to give me feedback as to, you know, what they actually extracted as that valuable magic moment. And right now, a lot of times it it, it comes down to they're getting an SMS when they're not next to the products they're selling. And that SMS is telling them they just sold a product. So that's like a really exciting magic moment where like, oh, I I wasn't there and I was able to make a sale. Um, And I think what it does for us is it it creates that same moment that if you've got an e-commerce store, that you're you're able to begin to see those sales come through when you're not actually present and selling selling those things. But in the real world, that's actually a difficult thing to replicate. And so uh, that's what we're doing right now. I think we're consolidating around that that level of feature. but I think most is that of it more just of a comes kiosk. Down. So that is more yeah, of like you think of it uh, like a kiosk. kiosk. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or let's say you've got multiple remote sales people that are out there going door to door selling something or, okay. you know, you've got different teams that are going out there selling all of that stuff gets consolidated into SMSs to whoever owns the merchant services. Got account. it. Okay. And so like, you're just like seeing these sales come through and you would have had to go look in a dashboard and like, it's like the difference between, you know, requesting something and something being passively sent to you, right? Push notifications, right? And, uh, I, and I think that that magic is what I've seen be the differentiator between a product that people care about and a product that people don't ever show up at the front door at. They, they don't want to pull things out of it. They want to be pushed things. Well, I think part of my point here is, you're trying to solve problems for a specific niche of type of customers, mm-hmm. right? And it's very easy to get pulled into like, oh, well now we're trying to compete with Square or QuickBooks or yeah. a thousand other different things that that exist out there. And that that's always a challenge. And you talk about taking the customer's feedback and listening to that and reacting to it. But part of the struggle there could be that the customer you're talking to isn't actually the right customer. Like, yeah. you know, you you know, you could be getting this feedback like, well, that's not actually the niche I'm trying to target, you mm-hmm. know. And so I think that's the reason I bring it up. Is I think it's a struggle that a lot of entrepreneurs have, right? When you're early on, you're trying to get that get that feedback and and improve the product, but at the same time, trying to stay true to what your actual target focus is 
or otherwise the people may drag you into like, now I compete with all these other things. Like I failed at the mission that I was after. Yeah. And I think I probably, uh, throughout my career have struggled with this more because I, I lean towards the engineering side. So like I like building, uh, and if you like building a lot of times you will build before you have the problem at hand. Right. And, uh, or at least the finite problem that has bubbled up to, uh, making it very clear that you need to build something to solve that problem. And I think, um, you know, we built a little bit before we decided to go to market and I, I probably would flip that on its head a little bit before I did it again. But I think what's nice about being able to build fast is like the technical debt or the cost of building isn't actually the problem for you. The problem is going out and selling and having conversations with customers. And so I think what we focused on recently is we built something. It took us two or three months to build the thing and then putting it in their hands and seeing what it was like to play with it and asking asking them where they found value or what the problem was. I think it was like the, it was like the pamphlet we were able to give uh, prior to, you know, closing the sale, right? Like we, we began to see what they looked at, what they pointed out so that we could then know, okay, these are the things that they actually are concerned about within their business. And one of the things that it did for us was it helped us realize that uh, there is a segment of, of services called ISOs, which are basically payment processors that are very localized to uh, regions and areas that actually house a lot of merchants. And those ISOs don't have a lot of good software that's built for them. Most of the software was built by their parent super ISO or bought by their parent super ISO. And those super ISOs don't really care about the merchant services software. They care about getting the merchant to do transactions through their payment processor. And so now what we're doing is really focusing on building quality software for those specific merchant services providers and then enabling those merchant services to go out with a better product because like they're now they're competing with the squares of the world now they're the competing with the rebels and the these other point of sales that have really focused on not just the software but the hardware and also have a backing bank and so uh, they're, they're still they're still in the space. They still get customers. It's just they don't have a great differentiated product outside of really high quality support. And so uh, I think I think what we want to be able to do is build better interfaces for those people and then build the kind of like first in class technologies that these very large technology providers have built, but scale them to the rest of the kind of merchant services community. Well, I think you nailed it earlier, you know, as engineers and product focused people, it's easy for us to sit in our office or at our home and think, well, if I just add this new feature, then we can sell it to these people. If I just add this mm-hmm. this feature, then we can sell it to these people, right? And you just keep stacking up all these features. Where really the problem is, is we don't go deep enough into a specific type of customer, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you said, I need to spend more time talking to people that own kiosks, or I need to spend more time with people in this specific industry or whatever, to really, really understand their pain points and go deeper to exactly what would help them. So I become the best product for them, instead of becoming a mediocre product for a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, we- that's the mistake we all make. We've we've spoke to a couple of investors. One of them was a guy named Bill Smith. He he founded um, Shipped, the grocery delivery company. And Josh and I both wrote code in that. Josh was actually built the first prototype for Shipped. And um, when we were talking to him, he was like, "Listen, there's so many of these businesses that exist 
out there in the world that just throw off piles of cash, but they're not sexy at all. And some of them are like HVAC businesses and plumbers. And you know that they're doing that because when you call them, you get put on a schedule and you get put in the future because they have too much uh, inflow of customers for the now, right? And then right. if you want them now, they're going to charge you three and five times what they would charge you if you just waited for a few weeks. And so he said, you know, th there's all of these businesses. And what you need to realize is, is there are products that need to support those businesses. And the current technology company in the world that, you know, your Square, or even your Googles or whoever, they aren't supporting those businesses. They're actually gatekeepers to those businesses. And what you want to do is find a, a product that isn't gatekeeped by Facebook or, you know, Google or something like that, that you can directly call and make a sale to them. And so it was good sage advice because he was like, at that point when we were developing the product, it felt like we were boiling the ocean to a certain extent, trying to build too much. And, uh, and it really helped us focus on, hey, we've got a couple positive signals here from this payment processing community. Let's see if we can really focus on that, double down, and see if they can unlock a set of customers for us. And it seems like it's working right right now, but you know, uh, we're very early in the business, so we'll see, we'll see where it goes. But we're excited to be building for these, this community because it feels like it's been a, a neglected community. At, at times, it feels like Excel spreadsheets still, you know, and, <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's why everybody jokes about like most people's competition is actually Excel because so many people oh, yeah. use Excel, which has exactly. now turned into uh monday and Airtable, Air all these other things and, which are yes. like the online version basically like a little more sophisticated than excel so yeah the intermediary step was non-sql related uh no sql databases when everybody was dumping everything into mongo <laughs> it was like that was your new new version of your back end so uh it was it was fun to watch that hopefully go and uh and, and pass since then well, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers. At FullScale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Visit more when you visit FullScale.io. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, as we wrap up the show... I'm curious if you have any, you know, final tips or word of wisdom for other entrepreneurs that are listening today. Hmm. I think, uh, I think something that's really important as an entrepreneur is you learn how to, um, not neglect yourself or the people around you. Um, I think it's really, it's really easy to get enthralled with the problem that you're solving and get lost in it. And, I know at times in my career, I've, I've, you know, there's always a sacrifice somewhere as an entrepreneur, whether it be your family, your home, your faith, your community, whatever it is, you're going to have to sacrifice time somewhere to be able to execute on something that you feel passionate about. And uh, I don't, I, I would just encourage people not to take that lightly. Uh, and I would encourage people to um, really focus on family. Uh, over over work and business, if you could, um, because uh, they're the people that will stick with you when you know this business is gone and the next business is coming along, and uh, they're the support that enables you to do those things. And so, I think that would be the the biggest tip I could give to people. And then the other thing is, is I'm a faith filled Christian, and so 
uh, finding uh, finding and higher power is an important thing uh, that uh, helps you to make sure that you know that you're not the the center of the universe because if you're the center of the universe, that's a very small universe. So uh, I, w- I would encourage people to find that as well. Awesome. Well, everybody, this was Billy Boozer and his company is Hustle Mob. You can check him out at hustlemob.com. And thank you so much for being on the show today, Billy. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.